Hey, uh, welcome everybody to the uh, CNS Journal Club podcast. Uh, today we're going to be discussing a very interesting topic uh, for many, and that is going to be converting pediatric patients and young adults from a shunt to a third ventriculostomy, a multicenter evaluation. And uh, today we have the uh, first author uh, for the study, which is uh, Dr. David Hirsch. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Vega. It's, uh, it's really an honor to be part of the podcast. My name is David Hirsch. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Connecticut Children's in Hartford, Connecticut. I recently completed my training at the University of Maryland, and I did my Pete Fellowship last year at Lavonia Children's Hospital in St. Jude in Memphis, which is where I worked on this project. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we also have a special guest uh, today, one of our guest faculty, who's Dr. Quincy. Would you like to introduce yourself for us as well? Yes, thank you for having me. Carolyn Quincy. I'm a pediatric and school-based surgeon at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and uh, also an ETV enthusiast, so thanks for having me. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, and uh, also we have Dr. Uh, Daguwadi, who's been working with us for a while as one of the CNS fellows. So would you like to introduce yourself for us today? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Blake Daguwadi. I'm a PDY5 resident at Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, uh, welcome. And of course, I'm your moderator, Dr. Rafael Vega at Beth Israel Deaconess, and uh, this is going to be the August uh, CNS podcast uh, for 2020. So, uh, Dr. Hirsch, go ahead and give us a quick introduction, a rundown of the uh, topic, and uh, what got you interested in this uh, during your time. Sure. So, you know, before I get into the study itself, I really want to acknowledge Paul Klimo, the senior author on the paper. He was really the, the driving force behind this project. And our study was really inspired by the fact that over the years, endoscopic third ventriculostomy has become a really, really popular alternative to shunting for patients who meet certain criteria. And I think all neurosurgeons, but especially pediatric neurosurgeons, are very familiar with the problems that shunted patients can develop. And ETVs, we think, represent a more physiologic alternative to shunts. And they have rates of infection and late failure that are definitely much lower than for shunts. And so ETVs have become a very attractive option. And for the most part, we tend to use the ETV success score to try to pick out which patients might be good candidates for an ETV. The success score assigns an extra 10 points to patients who have not had a shunt before. And that's based on some older data that suggests that patients with prior shunts may not do as well after an ETV. But anecdotally, we've definitely had experiences with patients who were able to achieve shunt independence after an ETV. And so we wanted to look at this more systematically. Mm, very good. And um, so I, I read there were a few centers involved and you had uh, several patients. Can you tell us a little bit about the methods and you know, how many patients and what your uh, end goal was as far as what you're looking at in this study? Sure. So, you know, this was a, a retrospective review and we were looking at patients from three different children's hospitals. Labonner Children's Hospital was the main site. And then we also had patients from Children's Hospital of Colorado and Levine Children's Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina. And between those three centers, uh, we identified a total of 80 patients who had already had a shunt in place and then underwent an ETV. Most of these, probably about 70% were patients presenting with a shunt malfunction, and then another 10% or so had been recently treated for an infection. And we were trying to find out uh, what percentage of these patients went on to have ETV success. And we actually defined this a little bit differently than an ETV success score. Uh, we defined ETV success as being very specifically not needing replacement or revision of the shunt, 
if the patient required a second ETV, which we did see in four of our patients, uh, but avoided having to have the shunt replaced or revised, we still consider that a success. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, um, one thing just from my standpoint when I was reading, I was curious about, you know, what made you or, or what made it to where after removal of the shunt or when the patient had infection that they needed a second intervention? Like, were there anybody, was there anybody that, you know, had, you know, further imaging studies such as hydrocephalus or had some sign of failure, you know, while they were externalized? Or did they even need an ETV or shunt at all? Just, you know, just kind of briefly, I'm curious about your guys' um, insight on that. In terms of the patients who had an ETV but then needed a second one? Right. Right. So these were patients who, um, at some point after the index ETV, started to have symptoms of hydrocephalus again, whether that was uh, clinical signs of, of headaches, nausea, vomiting, uh, visual changes, anything that would have made us suspicious for a shunt malfunction in the first place. And this gets mm -hmm. into kind of a controversial topic about uh, what do you do after you've done an ETV and they, they come back with those types of symptoms? Uh, do you assume that they failed and put the shunt back in? Or do you right. uh, do a second exploration and check that ETV site again? And in, in our experience, I think that everybody treats this a little bit differently, but in our experience, the time to failure was, was a really important part of that equation. Uh, I think that if you look at a lot of ETV failures, they happen relatively quickly after the index ETV. And so mm -hmm. we assume uh, that in those patients, they may not have been great ETV candidates in the first place. But once you get past uh, six months or so, the rate of failure goes down pretty dramatically, unlike with shunts where you see a persistent rate each year. And in those patients, if they've come back that far out with signs or symptoms of the failure, we, we think it's reasonable to re-explore and re perform the ETV again if, if we do find that it, the stoma is closed. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, thank you so much for, for that insight and also for your introduction. You know, I'd like to open it up for, you know, our guest faculty, Dr. Quincy. Uh, by all means, if you have any questions or insight, um, share it with the audience. Thanks so much. So I, I really enjoyed your article. Um, thank you so much for putting it together, especially with multiple centers. Um, I'm uh, interested in hearing from you to describe sort of the experience and expectations for the patients because um, your paper makes it seem like the, that you could just do an ETV and uh, and uh, potentially, you know, kids are, are cured and don't need a shunt, but I think we all know that often the transition from shunt um, to ETV can be a process. So first question is, what's the average length of stay for these patients in the hospital? Sure, and, and I agree with you. I, I wish it was that easy, but we all know that often it's not. Our average length of stay in this series following an ETV was uh, six days. And that I think is a little bit on the high side because of three outliers that we had in the series who had a higher length of stay, so that brought the average up. When we looked at the median length of stay, uh, that was half, that was three days, and we had an interquartile range of two to six. But I, I think the length of stay question is really an important point because it's one of the trade-offs that we need to discuss with families when we're talking ETVs, especially when externalized drains are being left behind we know that ETVs in general are associated with a longer length of stay than shunt revisions where most patients can go home the next day. So I think it's a personal decision, but I would counsel patients that we do expect a longer length of stay, but if ETV is successful, that extra time spent in the hospital now, to me is worth it if it means avoiding multiple future hospitalizations for shunt revisions. 
Yes, thank you. I completely agree. Uh, that that discussion, though, I find to be so important that there has to be buy-in from the family because um, there is a price to pay for ETV upfront, whether it's length of stay or um, uncertainty in the short term um, for the long-term benefits in the, in the long term, of course. Um, also, what are the typical patient expectations you give for the process of transitioning from uh, shunt to ETV in terms of their headache or other symptoms return to school and play? What sort of counseling do you give them for the overall process, not just length of stay? So I tell patients that, you know, there's definitely a possibility of there being a transition period, and that's when the fluid and the pressure are equilibrating through the ETV stoma. Uh, you know, I've definitely seen patients who have had ICP spikes during the first day or two after an ETV, but who then settle out and can have the drain wean successfully. And I've also seen patients who have shown more CSF flow through the ETV fenestration as time goes on when we get subsequent MRIs. But during that transition period, there's no question there certainly can be headaches and other symptoms. And from what I've seen, you know, for each patient, the duration of that transition period may be variable. I don't, I don't have an exact number that I could cite to patients ahead of time. And I do think it usually takes longer than after a shunt revision. But for me, it doesn't necessarily impact the patient's return to school and play. You know, personally, I don't differentiate between patients who've had ETVs and those who've had a shunt revision with regard to those specific restrictions. But I do think that there is a transition period that we need to expect. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I completely agree as well. Um, it's interesting that there's no myelomeningocele or spina bifida patients in this series. Do you think that they were excluded by selection bias by the surgeons offering and you know, choosing their patient population to do this transition because they don't have classic obstructive hydrocephalus? And then also, do you think that this is a group that we should consider for secondary ETV? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. You know, we didn't specifically exclude myelo patients, but they definitely weren't as common as patients with other etiologies. Uh, looking back, we did have nine myelo patients in our series, um, so it was a, definitely a minority. Uh, but of those nine patients, the ETV was successful in seven of them. So I think you're, you're absolutely right that myelo patients aren't as straightforward, but I think it's at least possible. Uh, and the things that, that we tend to look for in that patient population is, um, you know, they may have other anatomical findings that make an ETV more challenging. They might have dysmorphic or small ventricles. Uh, we know that the floor of the third ventricle is more thickened. Uh, there might be a small prepontine space. And I think all of those anatomical factors are important when considering whether the patient's a good candidate for an ETV or not. Um, not only whether they have a site of obstruction. But one of the key points that we were trying to make in this paper is that um, it's not always a, a matter of what the initial etiology of their hydrocephalus was, whether it was post-infectious or myelomeningocele-related um, or aqueductal stenosis. What we were really looking for was, is there any kind of obstruction that we can identify at the time of surgery? Because we know that a lot of patients who have had chronic shunting uh, may actually develop secondary obstruction due to inflammation or scarring at various points along the CSF pathways. Uh, so we were able to use that to offer UTVs to at least that handful of myeloid patients in this series. Yeah, I think those are good points about um, the anatomy differences in myeloid patients, although those exist for, for primary ETV as well, as well as secondary, they can be a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Great. Well, th thank you. Uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Uh, sorry, Doug Wadi, do you have any um, additional questions or uh, that you'd like to ask? Uh, absolutely. Um, Dr. Harris, once again, great study that kind of uh, challenges the kind of our reactionary standard of a shunt failure and brings back the importance of 
trying to uh, have the patients be uh, shunt free. Um, kind of picking up on your last uh, question and answer, um, do you, would you recommend again it's an ETD trial if uh, a site of obstruction is not evident on initial scans? So I, I do, you know, in our study, we were certainly biased in the fact that we were more likely to offer an ETV if there wasn't an anatomic, if there was an anatomic obstruction. And obviously in those situations, it, it makes intuitive sense that an ETV should work. Uh, but it's really important that, you know, we were discussing looking for a point of obstruction at the time of the malfunction as opposed to looking back at what the original etiology was. And so that was, that was the main finding that we were looking for uh, at the time of surgery for these patients. But that being said, you know, even if you don't have a full workup to identify a site of obstruction, um, I, in our experience, we, we really have found it wrong to at least talk to the patient's family about doing an ETV or trying an ETV if you think that it's safe to do so and anatomically feasible. But I think those situations in particular where you don't have a, a clear obstruction uh, on the scan, it's really important in those situations to have an honest discussion about what the risks and benefits and expectations are with the family. Absolutely, thank you for that. I, I totally agree that, uh, you know, having the uh, patients and their family buy-in is, is vital to this entire process. Um, kind of talking about other um, ways to uh, predict success of the secondary ETV, uh, your multivariate analysis uh, found that age is a significant variable, and the older the patient is, the more likely they're going to have a, a successful secondary ETV. Uh, then when you guys stratified uh, the ages, um, it was really the stratification of patients above the age of 10 that had a significance in if it was successful versus not. Would you recommend uh, limiting the secondary ETV just to patients above 10, or how do you approach that uh, um, kind of, like from a surgeon standpoint, how do you um, consolidate and even offering that to patients if they're super young? Sure, you know, I, I think the short answer is no, I, I definitely wouldn't set that high of a threshold. Uh, I really think it comes down to each individual surgeon's comfort level regarding the chances for success. And in general, you know, we, we mentioned the ETV success score, and we know that the older you get, the better your outcomes. So different groups uh, across the country and across the world may have different age cutoffs. In my training, we, we pretty much offered ETVs to any patient above the age of two who met anatomic criteria with some exceptions. But there are certainly other groups that will go younger than that and, and have had good outcomes. Uh, you know, in our study, like you said, the median age at the time of the index ETV was about 10 years. But we had a wide range. We, we definitely had a number of patients below that. Uh, and you're right, the multivariable analysis showed that the only significant effect was for patient age, uh, with patients above 10 years of age being the only group that had a significantly higher rate of ETV success. But I, I do think it's important to point out that even in the one to 10 year age group, of those 38 patients that we had in that age range, there were 21 successes. So at the end of the day, you know, this keeps coming back to the family. I think it's important to have a realistic discussion with the family and counsel them on what you think the chances of success are. But I do think that it's very, very reasonable to attempt an ETV in children who are less than 10 years old. Thank you for that. Um, also, um, moving on to uh, kind of other predictive um, topics, uh, other predictive variables. Um, I saw that eight of the um, 
patients failed EVD clamping and a subset of your patients had postoperative uh, EVDs. How did you select um, if someone needed uh, EVD while they were having an ETV? And did these patients that have uh, failure um, and had to open up their EVD uh, subsequently have a lower rate of success for their secondary ETV? Sure. You know, and you know, an EVD was left behind after the ETV in 28 patients out of the 80 in the series. Uh, and in those 28 patients, it was initially kept clamped with continuous ICP monitoring. Uh, some of that came down to institutional differences. You know, that's uh, one of the advantages of a multi-center study like this is that you get to uh, broaden your, your reach, but one of the challenges is also that there may be different approaches to the same problem. And we definitely saw that there were some differences across the institutions in terms of uh, likelihood of using an, an externalized drain after the ETV. But of those 28 cases, uh, you know, the EVD did remain clamped in 20 patients and was removed after two or three days. And then for the other eight patients that you mentioned, uh, their EVDs were opened one or more times because of sustained ICPs. And then some of these were gradually weaned and removed, but for the most part, these were patients that did need to ultimately have their shunt replaced or revised. And personally, you know, I, I think that if the patient fails the clamping trial, it's a poor prognostic factor. But in general, I do try to get them through what I hope is a temporary transition period, like we were discussing before, uh, going from the shunt to the ETV. I've definitely seen a few patients who just seem to need a few days to make that transition for their reabsorption pathways to get used to the increased volume of fluid that they're seeing. Uh, but I haven't been able to figure out a way to predict which patients will end up being weaned successfully and which ones will ultimately need a shunt. Thank you for that. I, I know uh, from, from my personal uh, experience that uh, we, we tend to leave the EVDs behind us. Um, certain attending set preferences uh, when they do ETVs to leave EVDs behind. So I know it's very much institutional driven and maybe hard to predict uh, that. Um, in, in terms the other of, point uh, there, go ahead, sorry. Sorry about that. I, I think the other point there uh, was one that we had addressed briefly in the paper, which was uh, there definitely are a lot of groups and surgeons that uh, routinely leave EVDs behind. And then one of the practices that we had adopted uh, in, in this series was in a lot of patients, we did leave Omaya reservoirs behind, um, which in some ways, uh, you know, it, it ends up introducing hardware that we've been trying to get rid of, but we've had some anecdotal experiences over the years where that Omaya has, has really saved lives by giving, uh, by giving surgeons quick access to the CSF in cases where patients have come back in extremis. Um, and so it really comes down to a decision in, in those situations as to if you are going to leave something behind, you have to pick one. And so are you going to leave behind an OMIA or an EVD? And I think part of that decision comes down to uh, what are your predictions and expectations that the patient may have uh, even some transient ICP elevations after the procedure, in which case it would be nice to have an externalized drain that you can open. Mm -hmm. That is a, a very important point, and, and uh, um, I, I see the benefit of uh, having an Omaya reservoir, especially for extremis patients. Um, one of the things that you guys did challenge in this paper is that the intracranial infections don't necessarily preclude, uh, uh, don't preclude an ETV. Uh, do you think the length since the last uh, 
shunt infection would play a role in performing an ETV, or uh, do you think um, these patients, as long as they have an obstruction on their scans, would benefit from a trial? I do think it, it plays a role. You know, I, I think it's important to note that here specifically, we're talking about a, a different situation than performing a primary ETV for post-infectious hydrocephalus. These are obviously all patients who had hydrocephalus for some other reason and then later developed an infection. But, but yes, I do think that the length since the last infection makes a difference. And in our series, you know, of the seven patients who presented with a recent infection, uh, five of those ETVs were successful. But we do believe that ETVs are less likely to work in the setting of a current or active shunt infection. And the longer you can go from the onset of the infection and the less active inflammation there is, the more time it gives for those subarachnoid pathways to open up. And there's a little bit of a trade-off there because certainly when a shunt's externalized because of an infection, in theory, it's a great opportunity to try an ETV while still having a way to drain CSF post-op if necessary. Again, but again, I think that if you try the ETV too early in that infectious course, there is going to be a higher chance of failure. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, overall, uh, I think it was a great study. How have you incorporated the findings of this study into your practice? And uh, do you feel that uh, uh, your approach is different if this is a, a emergent situation uh, versus kind of an elective situation? So, you know, I, I think that the biggest hurdle to changing our overall approach, including mine, has been to really retrain our way of thinking and, and get people to look at shunt failure as an opportunity to at least think about an ETV, recognizing that not every patient is going to be a candidate. but all those discussions about which patients are the best candidates, balancing risks and benefits, they're clearly important. But I think a lot of us tend to see patients with shunt malfunctions and our instinct to think about what component of the shunt may have failed. Let's get to the operating room for an exploration and fix it. Uh, and ETV is another option to at least think about. As for urgent situations in our series, uh, ETV was considered urgent or emergent in about 30% of the cases. So it's definitely possible, but there's no question that there are other things that may make an urgent ETV much more complicated. And a lot of it really comes down to the ability of the OR staff to get the room and equipment set up quickly, which might not be so simple after hours and on weekends when you have OR staff that may not be as familiar with endoscopy. So in those situations, you really have to consider how sick is the patient, how quickly do you have to get to the OR, and do you have the time to consider an ETV and get the room set up or is it just easier and, and really more importantly, safer to revise the shunt for this particular time? The other consideration that, that I've come across is does the family have time to absorb the idea of an ETV when it's an urgent situation? And a lot of times the family may not be ready to consent for something that they haven't heard about before, especially if they've been dealing with the shunt for years and they've gotten used to it and they understand it. A new procedure might sound scarier than, and in the heat of the moment, they can't process that new information. So personally, what I've started doing is I've now started counseling all of my patients with shunts when they come in for their routine clinic appointments. And then we talk and we, we explain that if they present with a malfunction in the future, we might consider an ETV. And we spend some time talking about what is an ETV and what does it involve so that if they do come in in an urgent situation, they're at least prepared ahead of time. 
That, that is absolutely great that you you're able to um, advise your patients ahead of time. So it does make the transition and the logistical issues uh, somewhat easier uh, when you do when you do use this. Um, I think you kind of touched upon uh, the final question I had, which was, uh, uh, what do you want your final takeaway for our audience to be? And uh, kind of an extension to that, what do you think are the next steps? necessary to make secondary ETVs into more of a practice standard and more of a widespread uh, use adoption? Sure. You know, I think what it comes down to in terms of those next steps is, is our mindset and just being aware of what the options are. And our main message is to always at least think about an ETV when approaching a patient with shunt failure. You know, that's, that's the first step. If you don't at least consider it then you may miss an opportunity to help a patient become shunt independent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's truly, truly good insight, you know, and uh, and truly appreciate this uh, tremendous discussion, you know, that I think a lot of people will be able to take some something away. Um, so uh, again, I just want to thank everybody, you know, for participating, you know, Dr. Um, uh, Doug Body, thank you for all the questions. Um, you know, Dr. Quincy, I appreciate your insight and in coming in. And of course, you know, Dr. Hirsch, it was a great study. And, um, you know, this was a great journal club. So for all our listeners, I'd like to encourage you to click through obtain CME credit online. Uh, otherwise, check out more upcoming podcasts uh, we do this monthly. And uh, thank you again for everybody's time. Thank you. Thank appreciate you, everyone. It. Thanks. Yeah.